0: I wanted to, um, going from George's sublimity to my uh, ordinariness, I wanted to call this talk today uh, Mamie, um, how about um, George Herbert studies and how Christendom became private religion? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it could go with that, but uh, no, I don't think so. Or George Herbert. Uh, The opposite extreme here for a title, George Herbert, A Sweet Singer in Israel. I think he is that. I think both of those kind of titles would be kind of appropriate for a certain kind of look at George Herbert. But long titles are not in fashion. I think that's probably a good thing. And are often pretentious. So um, uh, today we just are going with George Herbert. George Herbert. Uh, though I did uh, uh, zip through a book for this talk, uh, which has the title "Picturing Religious Experience," uh, and then the subtitle is "George Herbert, John Calvin, and the Scriptures." But I like the I like the title "Picturing Religious Experience." I think that's what George Herbert does, picturing. Religious experience. Uh, what a gift if you can do that with integrity. I think George does. Uh, but just George Herbert, as, as I say, will 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 more than do. I hope this morning. I do read him as both, as I said above, as 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 he's a poet. I think he's a poet witnessing in his own way to a church undergoing a massive shift in her life. I think that's undeniable. There is, after all, always, it's safe to say, a societal context for the Christian life. We live out our lives in a society which is in a certain shape. And the church, as we know, has shaped, and it has been shaped by what is around it, stating the obvious. There once was... Christendom wasn't there. We have a dim memory of it uh, in our world and even in the church. There once was a place called Christendom and it was largely to say, it has largely to say the least, disappeared. Shadows remain of Christendom, but we no longer live. As a Supreme Court justice said it a couple of years back, you'll remember Audrey McLaughlin um, She of much uh, fame on our highest court. She said quite bluntly, didn't she, once, that we no longer live in a Christian society. And I think Audrey was pleased uh, with that fact. Um, Yes, alas. Our poet lived when the church was trying to find her balance at a time of great change. We live, of course, in a greatly changed world And the church is again trying to find her way in the world. Would that be um, right or wrong, do you think? I think that the church right now, especially in the West, is trying to find her way. Who are we? Where do we come from again? Let's rehearse that. Where should we be going? I think churches in other parts of the world right now are going through times of such growth that they don't have the luxury They're just growing and doing well, in a sense. The church in Africa, these aspects of it apparently are. Again, our poet lived at a time of great change. We live, of course, again, in our time. We can't just go back and be George Herbert, but uh, he has lots to teach us, I think. And at, uh, at such a time, a voice of comfort, our time of change and challenge, a voice of comfort in the faith, um, comfort's a weak word, isn't it? I would call it rather weighty, strengthening comfort. It is good to hear again. I find George Herbert such a voice. I have for many, many years. A voice of Israel indeed. I think he would want to be called that. He'd be very honored to be called a voice of the faith in that deep way. He's a, a voice of Israel, a singer in Israel like David. A singer who has wrestled with God mightily and has found that God grants victory to those who live out their lives in his presence, as George Herbert tried to do um, throughout his life. Mr. Herbert witnesses to a life lived in the gospel, for sure, evangelical, evangelical. In the church, for sure, a church which he loved, a very visible place. He loved the church. Um, with his eyes wide open to what life's really like. George always comes across uh, as a realist, I think. There's nothing anti realistic about his poetry. I never find him off in spicy lands of religious dreaming. He's real. He talks about the faith the way it really is. Here is indeed a man of God. I'm paraphrasing here a brief description of his life because we need that background. Some of us maybe aren't uh, up to date just now on George Herbert's stuff. He wrote a prose treatise on the duties and hardships of a pastor's life and a collection of poems called The Temple. That's what made him, has made him most famous. Uh, I forget the number of, it's over 100 poems in the, the temple drama of his, uh, his big work called The Temple, composed of many different poems. And in these remarkable poems is revealed the literary genius, it's often said, of a humble priest whose spirituality, I am quoting here now, was a synthesis, see, I didn't just make this stuff up, <laughs> of evangelical and Catholic piety. There's George Herbert. Uh, if you need a sort of big picture, big horizon uh, word on who George is. So this intro bust, and This is an introduction. And why not with a most characteristic Herbert poem? I want to get his voice today. I mentioned just a moment ago, I always find him a poet of Christian realism. Uh, George wouldn't let you get away with too much religious, again, um, that's the right word without being harsh. Re- religious dreaming, uh, religious escapism. A lot of people out there who aren't at church today think in here we do a lot of escaping. You know, yeah. religion sort of unreal. It's for people who don't want to face up to things. It's a good escape. It's a good Marx called it a good drug for the poor. Their lives are rather unhappy, and so they take some religion. To get them over life's troubles. George writes like this about the Christian life. Ah oh, you and I hope some of you are familiar with this. Ah, oh, my dear, angry Lord, since thou dost love yet strike, cast down, yet help afford, sure I will do the like. I will complain, yet praise. I will bewail, approve. And all my sour, sweet days, I will lament and love. George Herbert, poem called Bittersweet. I think the whole Christian life, maturely lived out, could be summarized as, I will lament and love. That's the whole Christian life. There's whole stretches of the church's life in our time, I think, uh, that would drop the first bit. No, I don't want to lament. I like this soft stuff. I will love. I'll, I'll be high on my religion. And lament disappears. But it's unreal. That's the unreality of religion sometimes. I will lament, says the poet. I will lament and love. That'll be my whole life, the whole texture of me. I will lament and love. George knows what dispensation we're in. A church militant. He talks about that a lot in his his whole output. But I won't end there since it's Lent. One more word from the poet before we move into other stuff. He says this about what we're now starting today. Welcome, dear feast of Lent. Who loves not thee, he loves not temperance or authority, but is composed of passion. Mm. The scriptures bid us fast. The church says, now, give to thy mother what thou wouldst allow to every corporation. I love his endings. Give! Give! what thou wouldst allow to every corporation, to every group that you belong to, you do kind of what it says, you go along with it. The church says now, Lent, get on with it. George loves the gospel, the scriptures bid us fast, and he listens to the church. The church says now. See, he's a Catholic and he's an evangelical. The church says, and George takes that voice very seriously, the church is an authority for George Herbert. The community of the gospel is an authority. The community. He won't be an individual guy running around having religious experiences. Yes. So welcome, welcome, dear feast feast of Lent. There you go. Uh, That's what we're in, and George has will get us going. Uh, Oh man! There's the end of the uh, introduction. (laughs) <laughs> Alexander Richmond, if she ever comes up to you and says, uh, "I'm thinking about uh, you know something in the church uh, calendar," beware if you maybe make get away because she's about to ask you to do something. But you see, this Friday, it's the uh, she talked to me about about Herbert. This Friday, uh, the 27th of February, is the day when we remember George Herbert, poet and pastor, in the church calendar. That's why we're talking about George today. He's a great poet. But Alexander Ritzman knows how to pull this off. So that's why we're sort of thinking George Herbert thoughts today. Again, the 27th, that's this Friday. When you wake up in the morning, say to yourself, ah, George Herbert, pastor and poet. And uh, he passed away in 1633. The church calendar reminds us of this poet-clergyman, George Herbert. He was ordained. His dates, I want to really look at his dates. They're up here. His dates are 1593 to 1633. Uh, A short life, 40 years, George. Pascal had a short life. Kierkegaard had a short life. A number of significant Christians had short, very short lives. George lived 40 years. 1593... To 1633, his family was sufficiently prominent that he might have lived a comfortable court life of some kind. He was uh, born into uh, sort of Downton Abbey circumstances, or the equivalent in uh, that day. Let's hope the family got along better than that bunch. You know, uh, there. Yeah, uh, he again, he could have had a comfort. He was on a trajectory towards a pretty high-powered, high-positioned kind of life. But uh, he missed this life for all sorts of reasons, and he took to the life of a clergyman. He took, as they then said, I think they then said, holy orders, and ministered at a place called Bemerton near Salisbury. I bet some people in the room have been there. Um, T.S. Eliot made uh, the whole life environment of uh, George Herbert famous, but I'm going to talk about that today. A life story is told like that, isn't it? There, there's, there's sort of a picture of George. All of us have some sort of life story like that, and that's reasonable enough. Mr. For instance, Mr. Herbert studied at Cambridge. He had four or five brothers, big family. One brother became quite prominent, Lord Herbert of Cherbury. He had some sisters. His father died early. You know, again, there's the way you can sort of sum up a life in the, what do they call it in the UK? The Dictionary of National Biography or whatever it is, would tell you all that kind of George Herbert stuff. But what's more to the point, I'm sure you'll agree, is to inquire about, how do you say this? Inquire about, try to discern, well, maybe his soul. That's a bit much, eh? How about his spirit? In our time, we would rather talk, Mimi, about his prevailing sensibility. What was he really like, George, if you met him? What kind of a guy was he, George? 1593 to 1633. I keep thinking about that. Dates are interesting as they raise the issue about what is possible to be at such a time. People have possibilities depending on where they're born, what strata of society, what time in the in the history of the world they're born. Again, pointing out the obvious. What are the possibilities for a human sensibility at 1593 to 1633? A lot of people, I think, I, I say this in a friendly manner, think about the past, maybe like Downton Abbey. Uh... People who lived, uh, they're just like us, except they used to wear funny clothes. You know, and That's not the way it was in, in the past. People were really quite distinctively different, we can safely say. There may have been an underlying core of humanness dealing with the deepest same issues, but people surely do change or are, are different depending on when they happen in the world, if you will. And I think the answer here, crucially, about what are George's possibilities is that we can say about George is that many possibilities were opening up just at the time when George Herbert flourished in the world. If George had been born three or four hundred years before, I think you might say, on the whole, risking big generalizations, fewer possibilities were possible. Fewer, fewer, fewer. The great, uh, uh, the wonderful philosopher Charles Taylor, I think in his his magisterial big book, uh, the, A Secular Age, talks about, I think this is very helpful, it, it, it's what his whole big, it's now becoming a famous book. I think it's a classic. I think it's the best book ever written by a Canadian. What? A, a Secular Age by Charles Taylor. He says, look folks, at the year 1500, it was really difficult not to believe in God. And at the year 2,500 years later, it's quite thinkable not to believe in God. Quite thinkable. Go to some university campuses, and most people take it for granted there's no God. And Charles Taylor's big book, A Secular Age, is answering the question how did that happen? How did we get to a secular age? How did that happen? But that's not what I want to talk about today. You see, George is 93 years when he's a baby, past the year 1500. And things are changing in the world. Many different kinds of possibilities were just in their infancy, but they were starting to open up. In German universities, uh, and I'm sure this is true in other places, for teaching purposes, the Middle Ages are very decisively called, oh, okay, young man, young woman, you want to study the Middle Ages? Okay, they start at the year 500, and they end at 1500. Those Germans, they're self-confident people. (laughs) December 31st, 1499, at midnight, the Middle Ages are over. After that, early modernity begins, we can call it. Of course, all such period periodization, what a word, is arbitrary, potentially misleading, but it means something. It helps you to get a picture about what's been going on in the world. And historians are supposed to help us with this uh, task. Mr. Herbert, after all, saw the world habitually in some way. Uh, It was shaped, of course, by all of the complicated past. All of the complicated past has produced all of the complicated present. George Herbert, George Butterfield, Herbert Butterfield said that. It's a wonderful statement by an historian. All of the complicated past produced all of the complicated present. George Herbert comes into the world at 1593, and a lot of stuff's been happening. Uh, in, in the world, he's on the far side of the great revolutionary moment, obviously, which is called in our history the Reformation. You know, Luther's great challenge began, you remember at that door in Wittenberg in 1517. And Mr. Herbert's time is a time when a reordered Christendom was sort of taking shape, wasn't it? George Herbert was born on the far side of that drama. It was, he was born into that drama. 1593 he's born. And the purpose of reading, and for, excuse me, for the purpose of reading George Herbert's poetry with some clarity, I think, and some, it will become more helpful for us, we might say that what was in place in Herbert's local English world on the far side of that great revolution called uh, the Reformation, was what some historians would call the Calvinist settlement. That's why I boldly put up here Calvinist. George Herbert, he would self-identify, I think, as a Calvinist. On the whole, some people would contest that. I think he would. The public life of the world, according to this settlement that Herbert was born into, and it articulates, I think, in his poetry, the public life of the world was to be, in principle, church and Bible-saturated. Because of the Reformation and the kind of drama that George Herbert was part of, it's very much why our liturgy is the way it is today. We are Bible-saturated and church-saturated. The medieval Catholic consensus, remember, 500 to roughly 1,500, was a different consensus, wasn't it? The church in the Middle Ages mediated salvation through the Mass and all the sacraments. Sacramentals, as they were called, were very prominent. They're still called that in the Catholic Church. You know, we talked a couple of weeks back about relics here. We to have a sympathetic look at them. In the Middle Ages, they were quite common. <clears throat> relics and pilgrimage and rosaries and times of adoration around the, the, the Blessed Sacrament. All these diff- disciplines were part of the, the Christian's life and mediated grace and salvation to the believer in the church, very much so. Um, Some were religious. They had a real system in those days, didn't they? Some were, in quotation marks, the formally religious priests, monks, nuns. They were kind of the leading elite Christians. And the rest, a laity, that'd be folks like us, they found salvation in a kind of a kind of slower gradualism. Uh, CS Lewis described Christendom, I think, quite beautifully, quite a bit, a bit uh, Lewis could be a bit funny at times, but he called it well a few received honor degrees and the rest were just given passes. <laughs> you know? That's the way the medieval Christian system kind of worked. Priests, nuns, monks, they were the they were the Feisty Christians. The rest of us followed along and received obediently what the church would give us. And the road was to heaven. That was the medieval worldview. I find it very attractive, the medieval worldview. I find Christendom very attractive. I think George Herbert found it very attractive. And I think he absorbed it into his Calvinist evangelical self and found a new way for the church to be uh, on the far side of the Reformation. And I think uh, he might be a bit of a picture for where the church may go in the future. I find his consensus, his deal, his evolving sensibility, which we're trying to discern today, to be very attractive. And I wonder if the church is sort of saying, yeah, that's a possibility for us. Catholic... Evangelical, Calvinist, I'm not sure. It's hard to convince a Catholic to become a Calvinist. But that that Calvinist saturated that Geneva uh, passion for Scripture. Uh, George Herbert regarded the Catholic Church as sort of, he, what poets are supposed to be good at metaphors, They the Catholics were overdressed. That was their major problem. But he said in the valley, Geneva's in a big valley apparently, he says they hardly know how to even put any clothes on in the morning. They were naked. He wanted a middle way. Catholic, evangelical, yes. Calvinist, yes. Uh, that was his struggle. He was trying to find a new way. That's why He may be a guide for us in finding a new way. The settlement, of course, was quite... Uh, I guess we could call it, it was forming, it was real enough, but politically and socially, that is to say most publicly, it was uh, very uncertain. It was in certain hearts, like the heart of a George Herbert, but publicly it was still a big struggle. Struggle. Herbert did not live long enough to witness the civil war in his beloved homeland. Uh, it's a blessing for him, I think. He would have been, I think, devastated by the civil war in England. You know. Uh, still, in this man's world, truth was never less than public truth. This is part of understanding Herbert's... Religious sensibility, too. In those days, truth was still public truth. I've learned so much on this issue from people like Charles Taylor. We don't understand our ancestors if we don't really take that on board. For them, truth was in the heart, but it was more than that or it was nothing. It was public. And that caused causes trouble that truth was never less than powerful and shaping of your public self Um, that is why I heard Charles Taylor say this in an interview once I thought it was very helpful it may have been on the CBC it doesn't matter he said yes our ancestors always appear intolerant don't they our ancestors always appear, appear intolerant. For instance, an obvious small example, Herbert, and we mentioned this earlier, went to Cambridge. Well, just read I was reminded of this the other day in a magazine article. For the longest time, and I, it would have overlapped with Herbert's time, surely, there were test laws at a place like Cambridge. If you were a Roman Catholic or an Anabaptist, you couldn't go to Cambridge. You were excluded you were excluded from the official world of public truth. Anabaptists and Roman Catholics need not apply. Now, why is that? Well, quote, they are intolerant. Intolerant of what? Deviations from what is now the consensus about public truth. They took public truth very seriously. George Herbert certainly certainly did. Those dates, 1593 to 1633, have a real a real story attached to them, don't they? Conformity meant peace, order, and good government. We'll have peace, order, and good government if we have conformity, it was thought, you know. And so exclusion was still practiced, like those test laws. A kind of workable public pluralism was a future waiting to happen and it was starting to swirl the idea of it wasn't it in different ways in european civilization a public pluralism was beginning to become a possible solution it was one of the possibilities that people in george george herbert's time were starting to contemplate can we live with different religions under one order and some would say, absolutely not. And others were saying, maybe, maybe it's a good thing or maybe we have to. You know, That was, again, part of the drama of George Herbert's life. You don't understand Herbert, would you agree? Some of you know so much more about these things than I do. But in Herbert's life, in his sensibility, and this comes through powerfully in his poetry, in Herbert, you know this word, it's a bit obscure now in our in our culture, isn't it? right that is R-I-T-E, right decorum ceremonial is embodied doctrine. That's why they took the public life of the church, how you worship, what a liturgy looks like, with extreme seriousness. It was embodied doctrine. They couldn't be casual. The kind of music you present to God the way your body acts in worship, what you do at the church door, what you do at a pew, what you think about the windows. Herbert writes poems about church floors and about what you do with water and what a window means. And it's all in, in Herbert's mind. This is embodied doctrine. And therefore, they're very prone to fighting about things, you know. Uh, To put it mildly. But for them, fighting was a good thing. Charles, uh, Brad Gregory, I think is helpful on this point. I don't want to labor it too much. Got to move along here. He says that when you look at the people in the past, the great names, uh, uh, later than Aquinas, say uh, Thomas More, um, Calvin, Luther, um, name some more, founder of the Jesuits. Attractive people, Loyola, 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 very Ignatius. Ignatius. <clears throat> he, sa- he allows himself in a historian at the end of his book, Salvation at Stake, which is a, a book about burning people at the stake, he says, what would these people think of our culture? All of them across that big spectrum. A lot of difference there. He concludes, I wonder if he's right, I don't know, but he says it bluntly. He says, they would hate our tolerance. They would hate it. They would see our tolerance as just sl- sloppy indifference to eternally important issues. They would think, yeah, you'll, you might put a murderer in jail if he murders a body, but if a heretic is murdering souls for eternity, you welcome him into conversation. See, that was their, their story, their <laughs> dilemma. We have put aside that kind of question. Anybody can talk. Anybody says anything they want. And what that guy's teaching over there may damn people's souls, but that's the the game you play when you're a pluralist. For them, that was the battle. They weren't intolerant just because they were bad guys. That's what Charles Taylor would try to convince a modern person to see. They had a, They had a coherent view of the world that made intolerance always a strong possibility. They should have overcome that somehow with and maintain a deep passion for truth. That's something that we're struggling with in our culture, I think. we're We're still in this battle in a different way. And yet, yet again, choice has arrived, therefore, in Herbert's world. The Reformation, Reformation meant, perhaps without anyone's intention, simply choice. Choice is now in the world. The great unity of Christendom, for good or for ill. Some people say it's much good in this. Other people find it sad. The unity of Christendom is over The ideal of a unified church and a unified civilization under the lordship of Jesus has just been shattered and again, choice has arrived. In Herbert's world, as we know, Puritans chose sometimes to remain in the church. Other Puritans became separatists. Romanists, at least in the English-speaking world, they went underground or they escaped back to safer places for them in Europe. The whole... Of Europe and Herbert's time was beginning to go through all this mammoth change. He was born into it, and he was dealing with it in his own way. A line from Herbert, which is so moving, I find at least, which capture, captures so much of this. I'm quite certain he doesn't mean to in this line, but it does. He captures this world historical drama. There's a mouthful for you. Um... I think it's an innocent-sounding line, but it says so much. It's on, by the way, page two on this marvelous handout, uh, which just has three George uh, Herbert um, uh, uh, poems. Uh, the one on the left, may I read it to you? Come my way, my truth, my life. I hope some of you know to sing this. It's beautiful. Come my way, my truth, my life. Such a way as gives us breath. Such a truth as ends all strife. Such a life as killeth death. Just the first line. Did you? I, I wanted to just skip over that quickly. Did you notice that that second sort of assertion here? Such a truth as ends all strife. There's a line in a poem for you. Such a truth as ends all strife. That was the ideal of Christendom. That was the ideal in the heart of George Herbert. There is a truth which ends all strife, and we are to know it and worship it. What do you do with those who challenge the truth that ends all strife? You say they are strife instigators, and maybe you just have to get rid of them. Uh, sometimes severely. Other times you just don't let them go to Cambridge or Oxford. We don't want your strife because we have the strife that ends all, the truth, excuse me, that ends all strife. Jesus is the truth that ends all strife. Herbert has a mind saturated in the Bible and certainly in the Psalter. Do you wonder, I suspect, you get used to this when you read Herbert, you begin to suspect that in those particular words, he is probably consciously echoing the psalm word. Remember the psalmist who says, hide me in the shelter of your presence from the strife of tongues. Herbert has the psalter uh, just in his mind, in a way that I I know I could hardly imagine. I think in his community that he famously belonged to, they would say the Psalter once a week. Sometimes I think they would just read masses of it at one time. Maybe during Lent they'd maybe do 50 Psalms today. The Psalter was just there. In Herbert's time, did not Christians want a publicly acknowledged truth that ends all strife? They did. I think it obvious that they did and yet that kind of order of things was becoming impossible and we've inherited the impossibility of it. And so the church has to find a new way to stand for a witness which is to a truth that ends all strife in a culture that says, no, we welcome strife. It's called pluralism. We don't want the truth that ends all strife. Ah, we're struggling with this. Uh, I wonder if a saint like Mr. Herbert would tell us to embrace our time as a kind of exile time. Because I think in his deepest spirituality, I don't like that word too much, but he had one, he understood life as a time of exile. He really took that on board in his worldview. His inwardness never seems uh, without a deep sense of our Exile. Why else write a line like we've heard earlier? Ah, my dear, angry Lord. This dispensation is under judgment. It's under discipline. It's under the challenge of growth. He's a dear Lord, but he won't let us stay too content in this dispensation, will he? Herbert's Christendom, such as it was, possessed both public affirmation of this exilic Lenten godly sadness but the joy of the gospel as well didn't it all the time that was the kind of Christendom that Herbert wanted to live in I don't think Herbert ever really figured out where it was all going to go he must have sensed that the big shift is occurring because all this choice was now (laughs) swirling around him choice was now a real possibility again um, do we possess the first, uh, again, public affirmation? I think we just have to say no. I never feel my faith much affirmed by the public life of Canada anymore. And Audrey McLaughlin made it official for me a few years ago by saying, well, we don't live in a Christian society. And I think she wanted to say, hooray! You know, and I wanted to say, oh, I'm sad. But she thinks it's a great idea. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, The the number, the the Supreme Quarter girl. What did I call her? Beverly. Beverly, yes. There you go. But it was good to have it made official. But we do have, we do possess an opportunity for godly repentance and sadness, I think. Maybe more so than our Christian ancestors. But George is a master at a Lenten Understanding of the faith, a dear angry Lord is something that he lives with all the time. This may uh, be reflected in his uh, in his Calvinism. Um, I guess from the kind from this Christian poet, we may learn a kind of mature, joyful sadness. I think not a bad stand for the Christian in the world, I suppose. You know? And maybe. The modern church will just have to learn this—a deep sadness, a godly sadness. I find that in Herbert, that that irony, uh, and I find it. It always strikes me as he's way ahead of me about this stuff. He's way ahead of me in the Christian life. The godly heart feels. The godly heart feels in itself. Writes a famous Christian, uh, the godly heart feels in itself a division because it is partly imbued with sweetness from its recognition of the divine goodness, partly grieves in bitterness from an awareness of its calamity. Calvin says that in the Institutes. almost sounds like a paraphrase of a Herbert poem. God shows himself angry with us because he loves us, Calvin says. Herbert has just absorbed the Calvinist worldview. He may have got it from other sources, but there's lots of proof that he had lots of Calvin under his belt. He he absorbed the Calvinist consensus and he reveled in it. He loved the sovereignty of of the God that we believe in. Yeah, oh my dear angry Lord. Calvin would agree. He's angry with us because he loves us. He's not satisfied with us. He wants us to be perfect images of his son Jesus, and he can't put up with us the way we are now. Oh my dear angry Lord. I'm getting on in time I want I need conversation with you. Um I want to give lots of time for discussion, so I'll just add one more thing about this subject matter. Uh, Eugene Peterson sort of ended on a lighter note. Oh, a heavy... Eugene Peterson a few years back, I wasn't there, I was told this, it's a delightful anecdote, Address the um, region has them all the time, Regent College, a pastor's conference. They bring in pastors again and teach them something about being better pastors. It sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? And he began, uh, Eugene Peterson, by asking them, the pastors, um, you can just picture in that big uh, place at Regent, probably a big crowd of pastors want to hear the learned Eugene Peterson talk. He asked them an innocent sounding question. He just read, hands up if you've read a volume of poetry recently. And there wasn't too much, uh, too many hands in the air. And he said to them, well, you must really have a difficult time reading scripture, you pastors, because (laughs) most of the Bible's in poetry, you may have noticed. (laughs) And it's true, you know, lots of the Bible is poetry. The prophets, our Lord's teaching is obviously a prose that seems to be coming poetry. It's a lyrical prose. It's how they made things memorable. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, a kind of poetry. Paul, at his highest theological moments, Philippians 2, comes to mind, though he was in the form of God, yet he emptied himself. He's a poet, Paul. He may be singing a Christian hymn there, or he's composing it himself. The scriptures are filled with poetry. We become better readers of holy scripture when we have a song measure of sensitivity to the way poetry works, the way it concentrates without elimination. Uh, To use T.S. Eliot's famous and brilliant description of what poetry is. Concentration without elimination. Put truth tightly together. And scripture does it all the time. Bruce Waltke likes to point out that sometimes in the Old Testament you'll find a narrative of an event followed by the same event described in Poetry. Why does God do that? Why does the breather of Scripture, the Spirit, give us so much poetry? He must love it. He wants us to be good readers of poetry. There you go. Uh, there's a um, uh, an, what you get lots of poetry in you at church every Sunday because you sing hymns, and they're poems, aren't they? So you you are already lovers of poetry. Um, we can learn the ways of faith. Uh, it helps to love poetry. Um, and that's what I wanted to say to you today about George Herbert, um, Catholic, evangelical, Calvinist, uh, great poet, uh, too short a life, but he's blessed my life uh, a lot. I just love his stuff. Um, 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 I, what, could we end by saying something from George? Um why don't we read number two together? And then and then we'll have a conversation. Come this this is singable. Does it, does it many people in the room know how to sing Come My Way, my truth? Well we won't try. We're not the choir, are we? But let's read together, shall we? Uh, one, two, three, go. Come my way, my truth, my life, such a way as gives us breath, such a truth as ends all strife, such a life as killeth death. Come, my light, my feast, my strength, such a light as shows a feast, such a feast as mends in length, such a strength as makes his guest. Come, my joy, my love, my heart, such a joy as none can move, such a love as none can part, such a heart as joys in love. Anybody here can write like that? Please uh, do. Amen.